Well, welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz and Miss uh, Sarah Miller to Potter's Pockets or Packet or whatever, 007. This is our ultimate episode on the book of the Harry Potter series. So we will be finishing the first of what we hope to be many chapters together now as the intrepid trio, very similar to Ron, Hermione, and uh, Harry, except for one of us is not useless. Uh, though, though, uh, I would say that uh, that's a bit of a prejudice on my part from a friend of mine that I recall mentioning about Ron in the later series. But I don't think that he's particularly useless in the first book no. at all. He's very useful. Not in this past reading. He's very useful. Yeah, especially in that wizarding chess game. So I suppose what I'll have to keep my mind open to is whether Ron becomes less and less useful as his knowledge of the novel wizarding world becomes more and more shared knowledge between uh, uh, him hermione and um and harry but hmm, i wonder about that well y'all it's it's great to be starting something and finishing something on the same on the same day and so we had chapters 16 and 17 today i believe they were through the trap door and the man with two faces uh, yeah. so we got to see we got to see so, so, well, I guess sort of something we've been talking about is both the, the, uh, the story itself or the, the endeavor to get through the school in the curriculum of the school as the game itself, but also the metagame of learning. And this sort of strikes me, or at least chapter 16, as sort of a statement of that, that even though these students had their final exams, now they have to um, solve the riddles of each of their teachers um, in pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone. It's as if they now have to practically apply the magic or the, the learning that they've done during their time at Hogwarts. It's as if this is their real final exam. Yeah. Like mm. the world is the real test of what you've learned. What did you all think about that? Yeah, I like that as a reading. And I think the way that the school is set up, uh, uh, it's, it's a way, I mean, ideally it's a way of kind of uh, encompassing the that's mm. the school would somehow do that and so in some sense um the the, yeah, the world is not only the test but also the teacher you know mm. uh, and and as far as this book um gives us a clear picture of like what dumbledore's up to there at the very end like a few things are revealed about him that we weren't sure about before mm. um, I, I think your you know comparisons of him to god are if anything, supported by, by that, right? So Hogwarts is the world and Dumbledore is God. Yeah, mm. seems, seems right. But they do uh, have, yeah. they do have, they have like practical portions of their exams, but even those don't seem uh, like sufficient tests of their knowledge or maybe their tests of what they learned inside the classroom, but not something they learned at the school, but outside the classroom. Because um, they have to turn like a matchbox and in, into a mouse or a mouse into a matchbox or something like that. But mm -hmm. that's not real. I mean, that's an, that's like the, that's like, that's like word problems in math when we were growing up, you know, like, Oh, it's right. kind of an application, but it's not actually an application. Um, it's, yeah. It's like being put in, it's like, yeah. Being put into a safer sterile environment, like for a scientific study, like on the one hand, yes, yes, this is an experiment about the nature of a creature. But on the other hand, these conditions are not the sorts of conditions that you'll find yourself in. Right. But I thought it was interesting too, how like something that we've been wondering at for a while, there were parts of this 
reading that I didn't quite remember, which mm. is a great gift, right? But mm-hmm. um, where even Harry gets to the point where he he thinks um, that Dumbledore taught him just enough to help. And Hermione and Ron are kind of like, that'd be terrible if, I mean, he, you could have been killed. And he's like, well, right. it's almost, right. and then Harry says, like, it's almost like he thought I had the right to face yes. Like that, yes. like, edu- is, is it possible that educate, I mean, obviously, I, I think education is a right, but, um, well, you know, what you yeah. make of it is a choice. And, um, and that, like, is it, I mean, is risk a right, you know, is danger or the opportunity to endanger oneself? Is that something that we have a right to? I don't know. Well, and I have a couple of responses to that. On the one hand, it seems that the point being made about risk and safety is you cannot avoid risk. Mm-hmm. There are certain risks that you can avoid, but risk or danger will enter into your life. And like I was texting you all before, the motto, the school motto of, of um, Hogwarts is Draco Dormian's Numquan Titulandum. Which, which I, w- I was criticizing the normal uh, ways of translating that, but which means um, a sleeping snake n- never, um, never, or one is never to stir up a sleeping snake. And so the idea is being that you don't need to add to the additional problems that you have, that problems will show up and that part of what teaching is, is preparing you to deal with them without causing them yourselves necessarily. But the second point on that is the fact that Dumbledore is not present during the final test of Harry. He's gone off to London and he shows up only in the last moment. And rather than appearing as silver when he's finally presented to Harry in the last chapter after his fight with Voldemort, he, he appears as gold, like the snitch at first. Mm-hmm. Um, like the thing that Harry has been searching for all along as a seeker. But something about that is it reminded me very much of, of the Divine Comedies. When Dante gets, he's, he's learning alongside Virgil the entire time. So it's like he's Harry and Virgil is, mm. is Dumbledore. And so Virgil is teaching him and helping him along and helping him along. But at the top of the mountain of purgatory, in order to pass on to heaven, one has to have mastered uh, the sort of liberal arts or mastered one's will so that one can move forward in the world by oneself, so that one can be one's own master, so that one can be complete. And in that moment, at the top of Purgatory, Virgil disappears and Dante continues forward. And that sort of reminds me of what the path of the hero might be, that Dumbledore set the path. He has himself defeated a great wizard in 1945, uh, who we'll soon see, played by Johnny Depp, um, (laughs) uh, Grindelwald. And now it's time for Harry to step up to the plate And if he's going to say, if anybody's going to do any saving, they're not going to wait for Godot. They're going to have to do it themselves based on what they've learned. Mm -hmm. Ultimately showing that what you have to rely on in the world, or or at least in these moments of peril, is less somebody else coming and saving you, and far more you using that which you have at your disposal in order to save yourself and those around you. It seems more active Mm -hmm. than passive in terms of learning. Application. Um... And just something, one last thing to add to that is, I think the situation that each of the students find themselves in during these challenges, like they'll get killed by these chess pieces. They'll get strangled by this uh, terrible vine. They'll get attacked by these, by this uh, giant dog or, or these keys. Mm-hmm. They're, they're put 
in totally different situations from what they would be put in for their final exams. Rather than feeling safe, they feel under pressure, in danger, fighting against time. It's as if these tests, what they get right that a normal test doesn't, is that it puts them in the conditions or under the same conditions they'll be in in life when they have to perform these exact same yeah. Um, yeah, actions. What were you saying, Wes? I'm sorry. I was just uh, making sure that I've got some things put away here. Sorry. Um, no, I I agree. Like the, the the whole theme of like the school becoming real is is pretty mm. dramatic here. But um, the 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 point that Sarah made a minute ago too about yeah. like the, the gift of forgetfulness, right? Like to be able to reread this, find something new. That, <laughs> that struck me as being akin to this um, sort of negative gift of, of risk, you know, or of, of actual danger of something being at stake. And, and I thought that was really interesting because I had the same experience where I think this part of the story, and it's true of each of the ends of the books. I remember the end of the book a lot less because I read it really fast, probably, you know, like mm-hmm. trying to see what would happen. And so I read it a lot less carefully. And so I think it's interesting that on the one hand, they are like doing a lot of stuff here but that goes hand in hand with all of the like learning and experience that they've accrued over the course of the year. So those two things seem to kind of uh, cooperate in a way. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you guys want to talk about some of the challenges then like starting with fluffy and what it is that we needed to know about Hagrid and what we needed to know in order to defeat this giant three-headed Cerberus dog? Well, I think if we're going to go, I mean, if we're going to go, like in chronological order, which we absolutely don't have to, but Neville represents an interesting challenge before Fluffy, right? <laughs> and and it, we can we can talk about like the actual challenges and then circle back and talk about Neville. No, but let's but... Start, let's start with Neville. Let's start there. Yeah, what do what do you see there? I think that's very interesting. I mean, and I... of course, we do always start our conversations with Neville. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What's going to happen when Neville features so much? He, he features a little less prominently in other books. Um, but no, you know, I, um, I like, I think we start to see a pattern um, with that I know is repeated in, in future stories where Harry thinks, oh, I'm just going to go it alone. And they're like, you're crazy. You were coming with you. Um, but it, it struck me as funny because. Um, a couple things like that we come to learn about Neville later like man he would have been really useful in that first trial right like in the trial um, with the herbolic with, like with the devil's yes. snare um, yeah. there there were four well there were five trials but including the mirror but there were four before the mirror and it's interesting to me that he continually gets left alone left out and I, I, I wonder um maybe if that's just you know three is a easier number to work with for the writer than four or or what but I also thought like his his courage in standing up to his friends I mean maybe I'm only thinking about it in terms of the way Dumbledore phrases it at the end but um it really I mean it really is is quite a big deal for him because yes he this is a kid he's like he's never gonna be friends with Malfoy so standing up to Malfoy what is he I mean he's risking bodily safety but he's not risking emotional safety or comfort I mean here he is with the only three people who've shown him any kindness all year and he's 
he's, you know, saying something that they don't want to hear. And, and yeah. like, I think that that is emotionally brave, um, uh, yeah. in a way that, that I think, I think really gets overlooked. Um, so I, I, I agree completely just because there's this beautiful statue of St. George at a church near where I'm staying here in Nashville, where St. George is fighting a snake that's twirled around his legs. And that gets, I think, the symbolism of St. George very well, that in order to combat the evil in the world, the snake representing evil, obviously, um, you have to combat it in yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think about Neville here and the fact that he gets awarded the points that actually end up getting uh, the House Cup to Gryffindor. And, um, and what he does is he stands up to his friends. It's like he stands up to himself. He, stands, he shows that there is something they are doing which is potentially a very not Gryffindor thing, which is a thing that could hurt those ar uh, around them. He doesn't, of course, understand that they're fighting a deeper game at this point, but based on the information he has, he's completely right, like you said. And standing up against an enemy, that's one thing, but standing up against a friend, like you said, it's as if you have far more to lose because you have a friend to lose. And especially with Neville, who doesn't have a lot of friends at this time, right. I think, you know, I think that's, I think also how he's dealt with sort of shows that he's in the moral right. I mean, Hermione, for when it's Hermione, and I think it's important that it's her and not Ron or Harry that casts a spell on him. I think there would be sort of a dominance element if that sort of thing happened. But the fact that Hermione does, and it's Petrificus Totalis, it's a petrifying, like a Medusa move mm -hmm. that comes from a, the feminine, which is so interesting uh, to me. I haven't fully parsed that out, but I thought that was good. Also, just... With Draco, he seems to have the negative trinity to Harry's, right? He has three, mm -hmm. Harry has three, but his three are undifferentiated. Crab and Goyle, what's the difference between them? <laughs> no, you're like, we can't even tell, right? Apparently, one of them is quite stupid. Like, he's, right. he's, he's like, they all kind of hoped that he would fail out of Hogwarts, you know, like, as if that's a possibility. So, that might be the only, the okay. only, yeah. Difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I one other and they're very easy to replace, right? right. Which we'll see in the second book. Um, but so Neville kind of shows that he's irreplaceable because of what he has in him, this sort of moral stand point, mm -hmm. not his competency in terms of magic, not his intelligence, not his strength, but his strength of character, which is something we'll see that he seems to have inherited from his parents. But I want to ask one one weird question because I just remembered to ask this. Peeves, who gets I found this out. Do you know why he's not in the movies? No. So here's the reason. This is the actual reason, which you can look up. The guy who played Peeves was so funny in the first movie that the kids playing Harry, Ron, and Hermione could not keep it together on screen with him. They couldn't stop laughing. He was so, so he was actually too good to be in the movies, which is an incredible idea. Peeves was too good to be in the movies. But I really wanted to ask, just adding challenges to the major challenges because I think there's a good way of looking at it is when Peeves catches the three out, uh, out underneath the invisibility cloak and is like, Ooh, I should call somebody like Filch. And uh, then Harry does the voice of the bloody Baron, Baron and tricks Peeves. I, I was wondering if y'all saw some significance in that moment, his ability after seeing evil in the woods to perhaps um, embody evil to some extent, some extent or to uh to have integrated some of his own dark side so that now mm -hmm. he has a, a a stronger 
he's more competent in the face of darkness in the world or something like that. Now he has some inkling into the darkness in the world and in himself. And that gives him access to an authority he didn't have before. What do you think, Wes? I have an idea, but or I, I just have a, a thought, but yeah. your thoughts? go for it. Go for it. I mean, so, okay. A couple things in this case and in a couple other moments in these last two chapters, Harry, Harry's instinct is on point. Um, mm. It's a, it's an idea that comes out of nowhere. Suddenly he had an idea out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, a great wizard, Harry, Hermione and, says. To him. And, uh, but even like before they go to ask Hagrid, if he gave away any information about how to get around Fluffy, it's like he has the uh, the light bulb moment when they were talking in the in the in the common room. Then he has this moment of Harry had a sudden idea, and um, it happens a few times that his instinct guides him, and it, it guides him with the mirror. Um, he think he's very quick on his feet, and I don't know if that's because of the Forbidden Forest episode um or if it's just something that he's naturally has a proclivity for that i I, I think yeah i I agree that that's definitely part of his character you're right you're right to bring that up it's not as if he just manifested the ability to work fast on his feet but wondering if that specific way of dealing with it because peeves has been difficult for him uh, Uh, yeah i think i think i think the other thing that might might that relates to this at the very least or it might give give us a way of seeing Harry as maybe like integrating um, like the nobility of his position as a hero with also some of the skills that make a villain, right? Which is dece- like deception. Yes. yes. Um, you have that, to integrate your own yeah, darkness. That, but like, so when they're on the wizard's board or the chess yes. board, um, Ron is a knight. Um, mm-hmm. He's, he's what he thinks he wants to be to distinguish yes. himself from his, his siblings, Hermione is a rook. Um, and she, stability and tradition. And she goes, order. she goes forward and side to side, and 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 Harry's the bishop, and like the bishop gets to move diagonally in a way that nothing else can move except for the queen, and mm. um, I think that I think that that's that's significant because it's it feels like you're breaking a bit of a chess rule, and um, when when you when you move like that, the bishop is like a a like a a very tricksy, um, highly effective piece on the board. Um, it's also, I mean, at least the little chess that I know, it's one of the first things that you move. Um, yes. And I, I think, I think like maybe that's a clue that he, like his ability to move diagonally, his ability to fly, he uses his instinct to like, um, I, I don't know, he uses his instinct to. Um, to kind of become the leader of the the three of them, like um, in a way that is pretty significant, uh, like a, of a growth for him. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a, that's an important um, an important development for him. That like, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, that was just. That, I, don't know if it's, I don't know that it's. I don't know enough about like the psychology or psychological stuff about. You know, is he is he like. Uh, uh, mastering some darkness within to to become an effective hero, but I mean that that sounds great, and you know, <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. Well, we can keep exploring that too. I mean, the basic idea the unions have is that there's this thing called the shadow that you project onto the world before you integrate it into yourself, and so you assume you're perfect when you're young, and everything else in the world is imperfect. 
And so slowly over time, you have to understand that the imperfections in the world that you see are likely not objective um, parts of the world, but rather subjective parts of your own personality, which right. you then have to fix. And I mean, so that's sort of the idea I'm, I'm sort of flirting with. That's, that's the Wizard of Earth sea right there in a nutshell. Like the, yeah, sounds... the Ursula well, so... Le Guin novel, but... So I want to ask about chess. I know that you're 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 a chess player like I am, Wes. I, I know I'm not very good, um, but it's sort of a mechanical game too. It takes a lot of um, just rigorous um, time to play and study in order to get to a certain level. And then I'm told that among the masters and grandmasters, there's a certain ability that sort of manifests that not everybody has. But um, why do you think it is that none of the characters? And I have an idea on this. So this is sort of a leading question. Why do you think none of the characters choose to be the queen, the most powerful figure on 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 the board, uh, and obviously the most useful? And the I I don't know it, when why why do you think a bishop, a knight, and a rook? Hmm. Yeah, I, well, I hadn't thought about the um, the significance of which pieces they are too much. Uh, I like initially. I was just impressed that they figured out like what was going on. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, like agreed, agreed. It's like okay, so there's all this stuff now, like that they can um, kind of jump into it right away and and do this. But then thinking about it a little further, like so that means that Dumbledore just like blitzed through all of those rooms that quickly yes. in yes. there. So that's like another indication of like okay, there's like a certain there's a certain like impressiveness about the kids figuring out all this stuff but then there's another kind of impressiveness about yes. the genius that is dumbledore right like and didn't well, even need to wait for the owl to get the message got yeah. to and speaking of the intuition that sort of sarah is mentioning there like he just gets to london and realizes that's not the place to be <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah so also like i guess that's part of what i'm trying to say there is like they are operating on a high level for themselves but they're not at the of the queen which has like omnipresence on the board you know so it, it made sense to me that they would choose pieces which are powerful in in their particular ways and yet not uh they're not at the level of um you know the, the queen who moves anywhere it will so I, I, I think that's great i was wondering also whether it showed the specific differentiation of each of them and none of them emerging as a clear leader that each of them plays their unique part and can offer their unique contributions to the team, but none of them places themselves above the others. That, uh, sure. you know, in, in chess, uh, you know, you can assign a point value to each of the pieces, the rook being higher than both the, the bishop and the knight, making the bishop and the knight more um, uh, expendable than the rook, which is interesting because Hermione, of course, is the girl and is the most competent, though she tells... Harry, that he's a great wizard. Actually, I want to ask about that very quickly. So Hermione's brilliant. She figures out that the devil snare is devil snare, and Ron idiotically says, well, I'm glad you figured out the name. That doesn't help at all, and that's ridiculous, because the second you figure out the problem you're dealing with, now you can help solve it. In fact, in mental disease, once you figure out that you have a condition, it often relieves some stress and anxiety from people, because now they know that there's something that can be done. Nothing wrong. Um, and so what I'm wondering about is, um, I'm sorry, I'm losing my thought talking about mental disease for some reason. Um, but uh, that, uh, what these, yeah, go on. Yeah, Wes? The, the great wizard comment that Hermione makes. So, yeah, so there has been this contrast between Hermione and 
Harry this entire time, and we've talked about it some. There's some things that Harry does naturally, and Sarah started to bring this up earlier. He can the broom. He's a natural. It goes right into his hand, and then he can fly immediately. And then he's actually a great seeker too. He wins two games in his freshman year um, against the other houses, and uh, and then down here he just he just knows intuitively what to do. But Hermione is the she receives the best marks and is the best student within the structure of the school. Why is it that she? What is it that she sees in Harry? Mm that makes him a great wizard that she feels like she lacks, even though she seems to have the most of anybody. Hmm. Like, I wonder if it is that she, hmm, I don't really know how to put it, that uh, it, there's this movie by the uh, Porco Rosso by Hayao Miyazaki that Wes and I got to talk about. And there's, there's a scene in there where Porco is, is getting a, a new, um, or, well, he's having his plane renovated and he's having a girl engineer for the first time fix it. And he's sort of a uh, misogynist about this. And so he decides to test her and he says, well, what do you think makes a good pilot? Practice? And she says, no, instinct. And she told him a story about himself that the first time he ever flew, he, he was a natural. And so I was wondering whether there's supposed to be some sort of distinction here between people who are sort of naturals at things and people who... Who just right? Who, but who excel? I mean, look yeah, at, I mean, Hermione is a natural at 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 the content as well. Like she does it once, and she she you know, there's I don't know when when she says that uh, books and cleverness there are more important things, friendship and bravery, you know, and that's I think <laughs> that's a direct quote in the movie too. But yes. like, um, it seems that um. You know, Hermione is sort of really invited into the fold because of something Harry and Ron do, and and um, like they they invite her in to be their friend. Um, and maybe he has a knack for maybe that maybe the thing that that he's a natural at that she's not is is the the relationship the relational stuff um like I, that's interesting i thought that's right that he has the right head on his shoulders that his values seem to be straight. and which is which is funny again because it, it's like it's like doubling a natural instinct for him because he wasn't raised in a home that right. would teach him any of these things so i think it's um you know he he um from the minute he meets Hagrid he doesn't shy away from this half beast he he doesn't shy away from a redheaded boy wearing hand-me-down clothes he doesn't shy away from from um like standing up for Neville like I don't know there's something that he does that that the two of them as his like you know proto sidekicks um like that's not Hermione's natural gift it's not it's standing out from the crowd because of her brain Ron's natural disposition is to try and blend in and I think Harry doesn't really have either of those uh well he naturally stands out too right, right. he has he, an actual lightning bolt on his he face he stands out he stands out but I think he also um like every time we've seen him meet somebody new he's with I guess the exception of Draco he's done he's done so without um judgment um and now he then judges them I think sometimes pretty soon but but like, that's I think one of the things that he's instinctually, instinctually 
good at. Um, though the other side of that is that he's clearly not good at instinctively knowing where the threat is, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly what I was just thinking about. Because again, when just to move to 17 to include that, when he's talking to Quirrell, he's so nonplussed about the fact that it's Quirrell and not Snape. And, and Quirrell sort of talks down to him now, not stuttering at all, showing himself for who he truly is, taking the persona or the mask off himself and also the turban. And he says, Snape, Severus, no, he was trying to save you the whole time. And that's, oh man, what a, what a revelation that was. He was speaking so that he could say a counter curse. And then he wanted and then it's obvious, Quirrell's almost like, look at the logic of this. It's simple. Why would Snape want to be the ref at your next game? Obviously, to save you, because Snape is a very... Well, I mean, that says two things to me. Why would it be the case that Snape would be uttering the counter curse and then would be chosen to be the uh, official of the next game rather than McGonagall or anybody else? It seems to suggest that because he has the most... He seems to be the most competent wizard on the staff to deal with potential dark arts threats against the students. Hmm. And so it's as if rather than being the ultimate evil thing that's trying to destroy Harry the entire time, though he obviously does very much dislike Harry because of his father and his similarity to him, he's actually been saving Harry the whole time. He's actually been protecting Harry. Uh, and like you said, Harry's totally misplaced um, uh, where he thinks the evil in the world comes from and totally does not expect it to come from Quirrell just as we don't either because you know bumbling Quirrell who's sort of a joke how could evil come from him um and so yeah so I and I guess I kind of sort of wonder about that why is why is Quirrell represented as so bumbling and jokish um and uh and, and stuttering um just to make it more shocking when he's revealed actually to be a dark wizard uh, with some confidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the, um, the way that he is made to be this figure of, uh, of fun and um, sort of like the students don't respect him. Uh, I think it's pretty effective as, as like a, a metaphor for the book as a whole, because mm -hmm. it's in a sense, it's, it's marketed as a children's book. Like most of these fantasies that have, um, child protagonists would be right um but then when you come to the the end and you see like in the last few chapters all of this pretty heavy uh, thematic material coming out then then it it's like the book has tried to you know it it lured you in with the birdie bots every flavor beans <laughs> and whatnot and it then it gave you the 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 strong stench of garlic there you know it's like there's, there's really uh, heavy that it's trying to do. Ah. And you see this more and more as the series goes on. Like there's certain motifs and things that recur, but um, that, that pattern of the books, like I said, towards the end of each book, you get this really powerful um, like, you know, showdown, which is hard to read carefully because you just want to like read it mm -hmm. and enjoy and yes. carry away with it. So I think, you know, there, there's something very interesting there that you can do with a book that's so unassuming, but then has something um, so powerful, it turns out. I think it also speaks to the re the theme that we've already picked up on it much earlier, which is the, that appear, like, like thing, things yes. are not as they appear in this world. And like, that, that's the, that's true of this book. It's true of the, the kids 
people who seem strong can be shown to be weak. People who seem yes, like fluffy and right, hybrid. and and people who seem <laughs> or sweet. People who seem um uh incapable are shown to be greatly capable of other things, mm. like Neville, um, and like like um people who seem plain might also be one of a kind like harry is extraordinarily plain right but he's also one of a kind or um and then i think the other thing it speaks to is i I really do think that this um that this particular book but also harry potter in general really plays upon like some um like this idea that um uh uh like that there's like true evil is in deception like that's one of the places or like um, I guess it, it lies in a lot of places in this story, but there's something about, about Quirrell that like, it's such a lie. Um, and it's like a really good lie because he keeps it up the whole time. Um, but like, uh, but the, that there's something about, um, uh, his deception, you know, pair that or like strike that against, Dumbledore's um, promise that the truth is both beautiful and terrible and should therefore be treated with great caution. Um, I shall answer your questions unless I have a very good reason not to, in which case you'll forgive me. I shall not, of course, lie. Um, I mean, that's something that we'll see in the next book that like, um, you know, the great evil is also, it begins in in a deceptive move. It begins in like a, you know, a lie. It begins in a lie. just to, just to add, again, Dante to help that, what comes out in Dante's Inferno, because many students, when many of my students, when we're teaching the Inferno, when we get down to Satan, he doesn't speak. Mm-hmm. And many of them have been expecting a speech the entire time. And then I blow their minds by saying, oh, Satan's not speaking? Well, haven't you understood that his language is the language of lies? And that all those who are unrepentant and have spoken down in hell use his voice? So that the only voice you've heard while we've been in hell has been Satan's? just as I explained to them then in Paradiso, the language of the divine, at least by Dante's account, is the language of truth. Right. And so that that's the voice of the divine. But it's also, and, come through in and even before you meet, but, yeah. even before you meet Satan, like the, the 10 classes of falsifiers and the four classes yes. of the treacherous, my students are always, yes. my students are always, we always start out with, you know, what are you, what do you think are the worst things that human beings can do? And their, their ideas are almost always initially violent. Um, yes, and, and, yes, and those are the most obvious. I talk with them all the time because the subtler, the more serpentine, yeah. more cerebral uh, vices are, are, they're more, you know, ra- I eventually, I teach like some, some very dark Jedi-like students who are like, <laughs> I, I say, well, you know, the reason why the falsification or, or those who are traitors or, or the fraudulent are so bad is because those are rational skills. Yeah. And in order to develop rational skills, what must have happened in your past? You must have had a teacher that helped to teach you those rational skills. Well, there's a good faith understanding that when a teacher teaches you a skill, that you'll use it for evil or for good, especially if you're publicly educated uh, these days. Right. Well, um, and so, and so, but, just, but yeah. like, it's the thing, it's the things of deception that most erode, like the very fabrics of our, of our, civic communities be they school yes or uh friend groups or no how whatever community you consider yourself a part of and i think that i think that maybe yeah. that yeah. maybe that's helping me figure out what is what harry is good at um is i real i think one of the things that harry is good at 
is finding and understanding and maybe um, like even lifting up the skills of another in concert with his. So like maybe that's part of why he's such a great seeker at such a young age when they're in the room with the the broomsticks and the keys that are transfigured and he and it's it's Hermione who helps them uh, like he each of them give a clue like Ron looks at the at the lock and says this is what the key needs to look like and and then she says you know it'll already be um, used because somebody's gotten through already yes. and then he's the one who flies and gets it but he uses the other two right. to help him like pin it down and I think Ron hits the ceiling. <laughs> right. So I think what Harry's really good at is like strengthening the fabric of a diverse community. And that includes honoring Neville and what he can do uh, for them, you know, and standing up for him at various, at various moments, but it's deception. It's deceptive crimes yes. like corruption or theft or dishonesty or what all false witness, all of these things in Dante in that eighth, circle that like really erode this a, a diverse vibrant flourishing community or a flourishing economy or a flourishing well, justice say, yeah. system and and harry i think is really good at like even if even for someone like hagrid who like has clearly made mistakes he doesn't uh he doesn't he doesn't expel him i think dumbledore is similar <laughs> like like yeah. treating somebody's strengths as a way for the entire community to benefit and grow as opposed to trying to make everything homogenous and you have to be just like me because I, I do think that that's maybe the difference between Hermione and Harry yeah. is that yeah. Hermione's excellence is measured on one scale whereas like the academic scale um, whereas I think maybe Harry has a bigger picture uh, I certainly Dumbledore does of what makes somebody good maybe they represent the logos too in that respect and that he what he honors what he does is he honors his own truth that he's honest with himself that he acts honestly and he seems to be able to seize the moment in a way that other people can't he puts yeah. it all together yeah in a moment that others can't and and that's the difference between like say an individualistic society or like a free democratic society where everybody can be their own persons rather than like say a totalitarian society where everybody has to be the same and pure-blooded but I really like the point you made about deception because if I look back at Quirrell, much of what his character is around and much of the negative effect he has seems to be as a result of deception, right? Mm -hmm. He's let both a troll in and a bigger troll in. It could have hurt students. That's a product of his deception. He's a joke and his class isn't taken seriously. That's a deception. He even sm his smell is even a deception. He, uh, he, right, he, like, he smells like garlic and the Weasley twins make fun of him and say that's because there's a, they're, they're vampires coming after him. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so, and even, even, even his, it, it's like what Harry represents that Quirrell doesn't is that where evil starts is in the mind of the young people. And then the thought develops alongside the character of a person. And so we'll see this in Tom Riddle and Voldemort soon enough. And we'll also see that something about Voldemort is that he often needs a boy in order to return to form. So not only does he need to attack Harry here, but in order to get his body back, he will need to use Harry's body and blood, almost suggesting that what Voldemort is is sort of a principle of evil that finds itself embodied in a human. Mm. And how that human manifests him, at least initially, is through deception I, and through lies. I also thought like that idea of it's very of evil as like 
um, when he comes, when, when Quirrell like unwraps his turban and it's so creepy and the whole, the whole concept of this is like a little trippy, but, um, there's like, there's a head in the back of Quirrell's head. Um, can only repeat itself too. I really like that. I didn't notice that when I was younger, like that that it speaks in repetitions. Yeah. He's mere shadow and vapor. I have form only when I share another's body. Um, Mirror repetition. Love it. And it's like, uh, it's like. Uh, that evil is this parasitic thing um, yes. and it reminded me a lot of um, like the the idea that evil is like a is like the absence of something and um, the absence of being right it, it seems like extraordinarily at least related to that those kind of classical concepts of evil and then he well, you know when he when he comes back and he says there is no such thing as good and evil there is only power like that's right. such a, just like Ollivander, just like the uh, the sword. And the, the, there's like that's such a modern conception of good and evil. Um, I, I well, it's sort of an amoral conception. I think on one plane it seems to be correct. It's like that's true that the good and evil do seem to be subdivisions of that which is competency or power, but that doesn't mean that power is is the more important feature of human existence. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if, you know, it's almost like that's what the sort of Tower of Babel idea is supposed to be. It's like, yes, well, the thing about just acquiring too much power, and I was talking about Wes with this the other day, is that it tends, if one becomes, it, it doesn't matter how powerful one person becomes, because if in pursuing power, they they decide to, to fight against someone else, say it's Voldemort fighting against the magical folk in this world, that which is simply powerful by itself will inevitably be defeated um, by people within the same system um, mm. who are good because there will be more of them at some point. And it's almost as if why we exist is not to acquire more and more power because what do you do with it once you have it, but in order to maintain a certain code and that we need the power necessary in order to maintain mm. that which is good or stable, that we need that which is necessary, not just, we don't need power just for its own sake. And to pursue it for its own sake tends towards evil because eventually you will no longer live according to the moral code of good and evil because in the pursuit of power, you will realize that evil things will help you to become more powerful in the short term, mm-hmm. like killing people or, 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 or seducing their minds or, or killing unicorns. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wes, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I started speaking where I, I knew uh, I jumped in when I think he, you, you should have been speaking. No worries. No, I, um, I've just kind of been like flipping through these last few pages of this, of this uh, great, you know, struggle and kind of admiring how skillfully um, the, the story is told at this part. And I find like, like I said, all these parts at the the climactic moments, they're, they're so compelling um, in each book, but the, um, the way that we get a kind of like mirror between um, Harry facing uh, Voldemort, and then after that, Harry facing Dumbledore. Uh, I found really, really interesting, and um, I wanted to kind of, yeah, look at some of the stuff that is is echoed between those two, you know, okay. pa- parts there. So, like, well, the first thing, right, is like the stone, this the philosopher's stone, the the sorcerer's stone, which has been this thing that they've been trying so hard to protect or to get or whatever. Voldemort still considers it like essential 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even he seems to recognize that um, taking Harry out might actually trump that. So there's that. And then Dumbledore so lightly like mentions, oh, the stone was destroyed, you know? So it's like yeah. this, this incredibly powerful, important thing. Oh yeah, we just, what about it? We got rid of it. Yeah, forget mm-hmm. that. What's important, Harry, is like the truth, right? And like love and all this stuff. Yes. So again, I, I just, I found that to be like a very effective um, way of kind of making the story like compelling, right? You get this like action-packed, suspenseful moment. And then you get this like, calm like telling the background of stuff moment um and they're, yeah, they're just like they're, yeah. like the uh yeah reflective like like his half moon silver spectacles mm-hmm. just like you mentioned another parallelism is when we first see voldemort i believe how he's described as chalk white slits for nose like a snake mm-hmm. so he looks like a snake embodied in the head of quirrell okay okay the first visage we then get of Dumbledore when we're waking back up, when Harry wakes up, is of something golden, like a snitch. And so it's like he's the golden sun, whereas Voldemort is like the snake, mm-hmm. which I think supports our, our reading that Voldemort is sort of like a figure of evil or Luciferian in some respect, whereas Dumbledore is sort of like a, a god or good overarching figure too. He also explains, like you were saying, Wes, whereas, whereas Voldemort is trying to get something out of Harry. He's trying to get him to act in a certain way. He's trying to get him to produce the al- the, uh, the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone so that he can then use it for evil. It's as if Voldemort is representing what evil does to a human. Mm-hmm. You can do these great things in the service of me, but it's not in the service of you or your community. And that seems to be the problem or the twist with it. Whereas what actually gets Harry the Philosopher's Stone is the fact that he just wants it before Voldemort can get it. He doesn't want it to use it. And that's what gets it. He wants it to deny it to evil. He wants to safeguard it. He wants to be a custodian of it. He doesn't want to identify with it in the same way that Voldemort wants it. It's almost as if there's a humility there that Voldemort doesn't have that keeps Harry on the path of the hero and also from becoming uh, subject to evil. That... um rather than having the ultimate power that will then make him immortal and give him infinite wealth, well, he actually gets the ultimate experience of life, which is to be a hero. It's almost as if the idea is, it's not what you get in life, but the experiences or the choices that you make during the problems or the obstacles of your life, which determine whether your life is good or bad, rather than like just the material resources that you have access to, like Draco Malfoy. I believe, or some spoiled little child like Dudley. I like that um, Dumbledore points out that that's like his proudest moment was the trick with the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny that it's, it's humility that solves the problem, but it's like that's one thing that Dumbledore is sort of proud of. Like he can't help himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's sort of like being proud of your students too, right? As a as a as a teacher, as an authority figure. That, that, that doesn't seem to be like a hubristic pride so much as they seem to have gotten the lesson that you had to teach them and now they can embody the quality that you have as well. And there's now a similar, it's as if you have passed on to them through them making the right choice, what it is that you had by yourself making the right choice uh, further back in time or farther back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did you notice, Wes? I'm interested, this is very interesting um, about well, Dumbledore. And, uh, well, I, yeah. thought, I thought we should probably talk about the, uh the way that well a couple of things sorry the the way that harry actually does lie 
there. He's like, I have to lie. Yes. Uh, he lies. He lies. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was was interesting. But then the thing that he lies about does come true later. So it's not really a lie. You know, he says, oh, you know, I'm winning the House Cup for Gryffindor and I'm shaking Dumbledore's hand. Dumbledore's hand. Oh, that's that's funny. So yeah. he, he intends he fully intends to lie. But it's for such a true reason that it's as if the only thing he can say, like, is in some sense true. Um, that that I found interesting. And then I think, well, like the way that they sort of explain, but don't fully explain what's going on between Harry and Voldemort. Um, this with the burning this concept yeah right exactly that um that that's something that has to remain secret for now right so there is a limitation again to how much of the truth you can say there um but it's, well, it's interesting because it's almost like yeah harry can grasp dumbledore but dumbledore or excuse me voldemort but voldemort cannot grasp him mm-hmm. and something i should have said a lot earlier is even and i think i said this in an earlier podcast or one of us did even Voldemort's name obscures him, right? He who must be, not be named. Even his name is a lie. And even his name literally is a lie. We will soon find out, right? right. I am Tom, Tom well, Marvolo. It's, it's an anagram. It's a, yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a reshaping. A fake name. It's a, yeah. It yeah. is a arbitrary or subjective restructuring of his essence, which is effectively what he attempts to do, right? Through dispersing himself through horcruxes. And it's like yeah. he tries to go against nature to transcend nature, but he will ultimately fail to do this um yeah yeah. i think i think another thing that that like that the two of them are i don't know parallel might be the wrong word but like um a reflection of one another um is that he wants so voldemort wants this this stone to give him body and he's willing to he admits to um uh taking the life of the unicorn such that he might have yeah, so to, so, and such that he might have life or stave off death or something like Opposite that. Of sacrifice. Whereas, well, whereas um, Dumbledore says, you know, to the well organized mind, yes. death is but the next great adventure. So, like, um, and again, this is something, this is um, foreshadowing what hap- what we learn about him later, especially with the Horcruxes, but that one of them is not afraid to die and one of them is deeply afraid to die. That's right. And it's like, it's like a power. A power that one of them, like the power over life and death is something that one of them pursues, um, both for himself and the world around him. And one of them acknowledges that that's a power not proper to me. Um, and like, and is, and is therefore, you know, um, oddly more powerful, like, yes. like a recognition of, a recognition Limitation of one's and own, organization. And I, yeah. I think that that's what that's part of what's so interesting about Harry is that like he he doesn't like he knew that he knew um, uh, that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to stave off whatever was happening in that final room for too long. So he sent Hermione and Ron to go get Dumbledore because he knew like, you know, I'm I'm a first year and this is I'm I'm going to get there, but I'm not going to be able to survive for very long. But he doesn't understand what what um what saved him and i just i love that like i think what it does is it 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 makes um vulnerability and like human relationships the source of your resistance that like um uh like the way that his mother loved him the way that he grows to love other people it becomes like the source of your power even if it is the thing that like also leaves you most vulnerable i'll be honest that like 
I was reading this right after the funeral on Wednesday and um, I, I got to that passage and I just started crying again um, mm. where, where he describes why um, uh, like where he, where Dumbledore is describing why he, um, Harry's skin burned Quirrell because like in the homily at the funeral, there was just this, this part of the homily where the, the priest saying that like, you know, that there's free free will means there's the power for love, but also the power for pain. And like, you don't get, you don't get love without stuff, without the possibility of it being taken from you. Um, and yes. like either, either you live in a world. Life too, liberty or, as well. Happiness. Yeah. Either you, either you live in the world. I, I either, either God makes this world without free will. And then there's not, suffering but there's also not great amounts of love or there's free will and there's the possibility for both right um, and the possibility of being a hero because in order to be a hero you have to put yourself in peril which means the potential for sacrifice which means death and just something interesting right. based on what you said there is something yoda says in uh the star wars clone wars series about the dark side is that those of the dark side are cowards because and they're, they're consumed with uh, the material world, with wealth and power over others. Whereas the light side, they sort of accept their death and their own limitations. Um, so that it's, it suggests that the dark side of both magic and the force in these sort of fantasy or sci-fi universes are, is the capacity to pursue power beyond normal limitation at the expense or for your own benefit at the expense of those around you and your greater society. And so... What that delimits is your ability to acquire personal power. But what that, what, what that utterly limits and destroys is your capacity to connect to others in the larger community, which seems to be the ultimate source of power, right? Because right. what is the ultimate that, yeah. source of human strength? Well, humans bonding together. I'm even reading a book by uh, Jonathan Haidt right now where he talks about uh, group selection by evolution and that we actually have a hormone and neurotransmitter called oxytocin which helps us to bond with each other and then bonding with each other by moving in similar ways, like marching together or doing similar physical activities or dancing together. We actually become stronger as a unitive group and therefore more capable of defeating other groups. So part of what, well, the, and then yeah. that, yeah, no, I was just going to say that's a perfect, dis I mean, that's a perfect kind of like social psychology distillation of what, or um, like version of what saves him in the end in a way that he didn't even yes. was that, like a bond that is inexplicable to him, um, even not something he even remembers. Yes. Um, and that I think that that, yeah, I think that that's, that's absolutely central. And to again, this. he's saved um, by someone who loves him rather than simply him, his, him, his own self, right? Like, again, he finds himself right. waking up and having to be told what happened. Um, yeah. And, and he's famous all over again for this, which I thought that was yeah. just a funny parallelism. Um, yeah. Well, that's where um, Dumbledore now became very interested in a bird out on the windowsill, which <laughs> gave Harry time to dry his eyes on the sheet. So the narrator is uh, sort of like Sarah mentioned, like cueing us like, OK, so if you didn't already notice, like this is the part where it's OK to cry. Like this is the mm -hmm. right thing for you to do in this moment. And Dumbledore is busy looking at this bird. He, you know, uh, uh, the fall of the sparrow kind of thing right here. So. Oh my God, a... Wes! I wrote, I, I wrote, I wrote that in, I wrote that in the margin of my book. That's the ham, that's the Hamlet line. Like, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. 
if it if it be not now yet it will come and i always think of that line and um there's a line in the iliad that's just that's very similar like there will come a dawn or a sunset or a high noon or whatever um where I, someone i'm gonna die and it's the, it's the thing yes. that it's well it's the thing that achilles like doesn't want to happen for a while and then what happens i mean like kind of to distill everything like his best friend slash cousin slash you know it's his best friend his best friend, his best friend dies dressed like him. Uh, yeah, and, and then he I kills mean, a guy dressed like him. <laughs> yeah, and, and, like, uh, yeah, and then, um, and then, you know, accepts his own bodily limitations after fighting a river of some kind. I mean, it, it is all kind of, nope, that's a metaphoric right. waiting yeah. of, of reading, of, of, but that, um, that uh, recognition of what you can and can't do and how the things that you can do are only made stronger by the other things that other people can do that you can't, but that you allow to join with the things that you can. Right. If you only become stronger in a way that supports the system you're a part of, if that's a society or an army, but if you become so strong that you then start diverting the resources of the system to you, which then hurts the system, then you become actually, even though personally stronger, you become weaker because the Mm -hmm. system that supports you and protects you is weakening and thus is more subject to being destroyed. I think that's perfectly illustrated by the fact that the second that Achilles Achilles becomes selfish and refuses to add his power to the, the Achaeans, right. they start to get destroyed by, right. by, by the Trojans. Um, that the second you, you stop operating in a well-organized fashion, as Dumbledore said, and stop recognizing the, the necessary limitations of being a human and therefore a creature with some prescribed and predefined limitations though you do not know them all perhaps some of them that you think are real or not um that uh it's almost as if what the light side or what harry has that voldemort doesn't have is a more sophisticated understanding of human nature even though i would say it's not articulated in harry yet it's embodied Mm -hmm. right it's the decisions he makes he just naturally makes the right ones it's like he's willing to die voldemort will do anything necessary not to die it's like, well, who's Which going is, to- I think, yeah. I think that's, I was just going to say, that's the height of, of deception is that you've deceived yourself into what is appropriate. Right? That's right. That because like- if you're trying to stay forever, you like Lucifer must think that you are God, but the fact right. that you have to you struggle have- in order to make yourself immortal is prima facie indication that your nature <laughs> is not immortal, that you should not, you have to do everything necessary in order to continue on against nature it's like don't you it's like Voldemort you don't have a body anymore everybody hates you uh, people don't even <laughs> say your name you look like a snake you don't even have a nose it's like you're a bunch of horcruxes it's like how tremendous is your fear that you refuse to pass away even though you're willing to live in such a such a limited destroyed decadent existence it's like yeah. what being a hero is is you get to live the height of life and then die and you're spared what Voldemort has to go through utter dissipation and loss of body and nature and in moral fabric. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just parsing that, that out right now. It, it's as if it's like a tree destroying the forest to be the best tree. I would say is the, the analogy that comes into my hmm. head. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm the tree of life because I've destroyed all the other trees. Did, uh, I think maybe a part of that too is Harry does seem to like really, uh, I don't know. I haven't totally thought this through, but 
aside from his love of the uh, invisibility cloak and like the mischief that it allows him to cause, it does seem like he, he always in this, particularly in this reading, he reminded me of like a detective. I don't know. um, Harry. uh, Who's like, yeah, Harry, Harry, like bent on figuring something out. Um, uh, Maybe because the other books I'm reading right now are all like noir (laughs) detective fiction. because (laughs) That's how I like, past the time in the summer but um he, he uh that interest in the truth or like figuring something out like the moment where he god I, I you know we've all had that feeling too where you know that you've forgotten something but you can't remember what or there's something that i've overlooked that i forgot to do that i don't know he i think that that's a significant trait of his that maybe maybe that's part of what makes him different um from the others is a interest in pursuing truth i don't know yeah yeah and you know something about that is that it's not a it's not a straightforward battle for harry even if we look at the house points that he's awarded and this is something i took interest in this time looking where he's mm. awarded and not awarded points and maybe y'all can correct me on this but i believe he loses two points to snape gains five points by defeating the troll loses 50 points for being out and then gains 60 points at the end and so if you do the math 60 minus 50 that's 10 minus two, that's eight plus five, that's 13. And so I was wondering whether, you know, hmm. there were just a couple of things about that. The person who seems to be the least lucky might be the most lucky. 13, of course, being, you know, sort of a, an unlucky number. And we just had a Friday the 13th, but also, but also because he's, he's not invincible. He doesn't not mess up. He's not, mm-hmm. he, he's constantly messing up. And in fact, Harry messes up the worst of any student on campus that year with his friends. <laughs> and yet he also does the greatest thing with pure nerve and courage getting awarded 60 points. And so it's, it's like, it's not a zero sum game, but it's also like the battle versus good and evil, but, it, but it's also not a game where you win by a large margin either. Um, hmm. it, it, he doesn't, <laughs> for all he does, he doesn't produce a giant, like he doesn't produce a hundred points, right? For for Gryffindor, that would be more like a Hermione sort of thing to do. He produces thirteen, but they're very useful, just like Neville's yes. as well. And so he comes out positive, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, but not not by not by a lot. Um, yeah. Well, going back to the the truth thing, um, I, I, again, I'm I'm interested in how certain things are revealed, and I think Dumbledore in the mm-hmm. in the last. Uh, feast there you know revealing the the true winner you know that's that's a good image of that Um, but certain things are concealed or at least allowed to be unspoken for now and the big one is why why is Voldemort going after Harry Potter and the second one here I think the most interesting thing about the series totally um, is Snape right and so like he um, he explains about how um, Harry's father and Snape had a relationship much like Harry and Mr. Malfoy and that he did the thing that Snape could never forgive which was save his life and Harry's trying to understand but it made his head pound so he stopped right? <laughs> so there's there's this limitation for Harry on that, that stumbling block of Malfoy, of Snape of this person who by all means should be your friend and yet you have this antipathy towards what you cannot understand um, well and also 
Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Wes. That's yeah. that's that's like I was... it's a thing that is at the heart of lots of of great literature. Like it makes me think of Billy Budd, and it makes me think of Shakespeare plays. Yeah. And it's like there has to be this kind of black box about the hero and the villain, which you you don't get to sort of articulate. It's just it's there and it's in the background of everything. But yeah. No, I I was just gonna say that that's also Dumbledore only telling part of the story. Yeah. Like Dumbledore is, is, I mean, this, the two things that he keeps from him are like the full truth about James Potter and Severus Snape as children. And the whole truth about Voldemort is going after him. And eventually those will become um, things that Harry either learns through the um, like occlumency lessons or through, a conversation with Dumbledore after an even greater um, and more dangerous encounter. And I, I guess, does that, is that, are, are there certain things that are there certain truths that you can, like you only should learn a certain way or at a certain point in your life? Like it seemed as though maybe Dumbledore, maybe Dumbledore was saying like, mm, you're not old enough exactly. for that one yet. Exactly. Um, well, and also that, yeah, go on Wes. No, just like it's, it's the difference between, like seeing the Shakespeare play and like watching what happens with this thing and and then like listening to some um, buddy explain like their interpretation yes. of what happened. So it's, yeah, right. the second- Instead of just telling him what happened, he, and, yeah, he lets him embody this, he lets him do the action and then helps him reflect on mm. what it meant and what he understood and what mm. he, he did. I, I would say two things about it. For one, Dumbledore seems like a good educator and that um, part of learning is that you learn in time and you learn only segments at a time of mm. a, a larger truth, whether that be a particular lesson within, within a particular class or any class within your entire education. Um, but also that um, what, um, what Harry seems to, or what Dumbledore helps uh, Harry to see here is the significance of his own actions. Um, that mm. what he was doing intuitively uh, Dumbledore gives him a clearer picture of what the situation actually is and where he was right and where he was wrong. And something that Harry's going to have to do, which it seems like Voldemort was never able to, is to be corrigible, to be changeable, to be mutable. He has to change his perspective on Snape, who he has been projecting this idea of evil onto. And obviously he was totally wrong, right? It was skewed. There was a lot of evidence that seemed to indicate that this was Snape. But it turns out that it was misplaced the entire time that, that, that nothing was mm -hmm. actual evidence of Snape's evil, that it, because of the interpretive framework that Harry was using based on the fact that when he first saw Snape, he felt some pain and then Snape was pretty mean to him the first day he talked to him. Um, he thinks he's evil, but he's, he's totally misunderstood Snape. And just one thing about Snape and James's relationship is I wonder if what James upset by saving Snape was that he, he upset the structure of Snape's consciousness, because if both of them were enemies, then in their own stories, they were heroes. And then mm -hmm. the person who they projected evil onto or the shadow was, if you were Snape, it was James, which he earned, which we'll see later in the series. Or if you were James, it was Snape potentially. And so in James actually saving Snape, he shows that the thing which is evil is not himself, which Snape has been, had been projecting onto, but actually that the evil that Snape hates in James is in himself. So it's mm. like what James forced onto him through his sacrifice for Snape, who he hated, is that 
well, actually the thing you, you hate, what you think is me is really you. And that that lesson is such a bitter and terrible lesson that, that Snape will never, <laughs> he can never live it down. Right. And, and, and we know that, um, I mean, so I love that idea about Dumbledore being like the best teacher and that there are some, some lessons that you have to learn a certain way. Like, um, yeah, like the idea of the difference between, say, reading a book about um, uh, about some law of physics and doing an experiment about that law and like seeing it for yourself and participating in it and measuring it. And then th- a really important part of Ignatian pedagogy is the reflective piece. Like, well, what did I know? What did I do? What do I know now? What should I do next? Um, and, and that like the process of, of like learning in the Ignatian style is that, and I'm only speaking about that because that's, is because that's what I'm, that's what I'm like coming from for the last 10 years. But, um, is that, um, you can't change everything the next time you can only change one, maybe two things. So like it's this constant cycle. Yeah. These of, of, as you said, like adjusting and we know that like, Harry's going to have a really hard time dropping his suspicion of Snape. Like it's going to happen multiple times. He's, he's not the most mutable or corrigible Hmm. young man. He's going to continually bring up this, like this animus towards this professor who's quite frankly, kind of mean to him. Um, But like, has like it, it reveals Harry's immaturity at his inability to look past that, I think. But, but in this moment, it does seem like, his unwillingness to tell the whole story about why Snape and his father hated each other and his unwillingness. I think that's maybe on Dumbledore's part, um, like an attempt to, to like, let him have this memory of his father as a hero Mm. for a while before I complicate that for you. Cause if you think about it, I mean, Harry's 11 um, in this moment and 11 or 12. I mean, in the, in the world of magic, in the world of muggles, like they are not developmentally capable of understanding the, like, m- like the complexities of the human character. I mean, it wasn't until I was like in my mid twenties that I understood that my parents were humans mm-hmm. and not like that. I like I had fundamental experiences of their, of their flaws and their their strengths and like saw them as as humans to whom I wasn't equal not just as your parents you know and like I think that that's like he's he's kind of protecting the memory of his father for a little bit longer um, until Harry's ready to perhaps face another truth um, and which, which it doesn't diminish the the virtue of his father but it also adds a more like complex dimension to the story um i think the same is true for the prophecy that like um uh that like harry has to learn that through experience right um not through a lesson or a lecture or uh you know well the the idea on yeah on learning seems to be shared in harry potter as well as in the purgatorio by dante in in the purgatorio what the spirits do is that they, they actually act and work and suffer during the day much as we work during the day diurnal as we are and then at night they're incapable of motion they're immobile so they have to move their minds they reflect and so every day they work and then they adjust through reflection at night and they slightly improve what they're doing for the next day and they continue that process along as long as they have to and that's just like how we learn right 
mm-hmm. make an experiment and then you think about it and you're like, okay, well, what could I improve? Could I improve this tool? Could I apply this better? Could these proportions be better? Could I put this in at the different time? And then you try again and again, it's not full sale, completely different, like you said, Sarah, but you might have a small backward step or a small forward step. And the idea seems to be just to connect back to what we were originally asking about with Dumbledore and why he allows uh, uh, Harry to take risks is that you have to in order actually to learn because you have to do the actual action and have the actual experience in order to to have the theater of imagination, have the event present within it so that you can reflect on it and have the motive to reflect on it because you're going to do that same thing tomorrow. So if like, say you're a tennis player and you're serving all day and you're practicing your serve and then you go home at night and you watch some videos and you think about how could I improve my serve? Well, why are you thinking about improving your serve instead of anything else? Well, what are you doing tomorrow? You're going to go serve again. Well, why do you think about serving at night when you're not serving? Well, so that you can improve tomorrow. So that you're not just serving every day, you're improving yourself every day. You're learning every day. And that's part of what I think Dumbledore shows when when he talks and fills in the story in small ways that there are actions which or moments, pivotal moments and things that Harry must do in his life first before he is capable of reflecting on the meaning of them almost suggesting to me that it's like you've got to go out and live your life and then reflect on it you can't just sit in the books as uh hermione says you can't just be clever and full of books what do you think about that wes (laughs) gosh yeah i mean it's fitting i think that's a good place to kind of end this like uh this book here because this is where harry leaves off for the summer right um I'm gonna have right. fun with Dudley this summer, right? So he doesn't know they can't do magic. <laughs> yes, exactly. One more, one more uh, a sin of omission. They're not telling, <laughs> um, but for again, for a, a good, for a good end. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you two. So it seems we finished something and are beginning something new. Would you like? Should we? Should we just start with the Chamber of Secrets next time and keep going? Keep the magic going. Good to me. I, I think uh, we should try to move. At a similar pace, although each book gets a little longer. I'm having a little trouble hearing you, Wes. I can hear you, but only barely. Uh just saying. Oh, there you are. Yeah, that with each with each book getting longer than the last, I think we should try to keep going at a similar pace. But it it yes. might just mean that they they get stretched out a bit more. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, well, actually, something we long. talked about that I suggested that I shouldn't forget is um, did we? Do we want to read that? <laughs> I know we were supposed to read that article um, by, was it was it C.S. Lewis or Tolkien? It was Tolkien mm-hmm. on fantasy mm-hmm. stories um, for next time. And maybe we could read like just the first couple of chapters of Chamber of Secrets and that as well. Mm-hmm. And mostly focus on that sure. if we want to. Um, I know y'all two have already read that. And I need, I need to catch up with you two on my C.S. Lewis and that. Um, yeah, sure. I think um, um, the first few books of the series they really like a lot. There's a lot that's regurgitated in the first couple, mm. um, in the first couple chapters of each of the first few books. Not like it's not to- it's not like boring regurgitated, no. but like the world is the world gets kind of uh, repetitively created for you. We come to know um, it a little better. It's known territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but you're being immersed in a in a similar fashion. So, so like what you were um, saying, it's an iteration. It's not all new every time. Right. Yes. Um, so that's fine with me. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, well, w- you, 
other two intrepid adventurers. Uh, perhaps we'll have to figure out next time wh what piece we would be on the chessboard. And um, well, I've just had the most no. wonderful time with all of you, and I can't wait to start something anew. I'd be a, I'd be a pawn for sure. <laughs> well, a pawn can become a queen. So very good. <laughs> yeah, I might say I'm a pawn under threat of being taken by a queen. Uh, three or four spaces away from the edge of the board. Um, <laughs> so, so there's great potential for catastrophe or for success. Who knows? <laughs> How about you, Wes? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, as far as the chess players go, like I, I really like Ron's move there to just um, to sacrifice himself. I think that's that's the kind of thing that's like that makes chess interesting. Like you don't yeah. just get to, you don't just get to like dominate your opponent, but you have to like do things yeah. that are a little bit, a little bit um, interesting. Yeah. To, to come out yeah. on top. So. Yeah. You, it's not just you. Yeah. And that's actually the mark of a superficial or young uh, chess player, right? Try and take somebody else, all their pieces, try and take all their pieces. It's like, that's too straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's too, too rookish an approach. <laughs> all right y'all well uh this is wonderful i think we're getting better every time and uh well let's keep offering something something great to to those who listen all right awesome thanks all right take it easy fellas right. bye, bye.